You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 168 of the Life Through Moons podcast. I am your co-host, Connor Johnnan. We're going to do another repeat this week on an episode. I just got out and back from 10 days in the field. Carlton's enjoying his summer break that he earned, and and David's working hard on other stuff right now. We will be back next week uh, with a new episode, new content. So we thank you for being patient with us and listening to the podcast. These August months, as you noticed last year, are hard for us and busy. You know, our our jobs involve a lot of fieldwork. So uh, we have to do that over the summer and we have these windows that we have to, to get this stuff done. So once again, we appreciate you listening to us, supporting us, messaging us and we will have new content back next week but for now uh, we're going to do a repeat episode of an episode we did about certain who ship found and the dig that was with tosh and raven so uh, please listen to it check it out and we will see y'all next week hey guys this episode's going to be about the movie called the dig on netflix uh, if you haven't watched that i would go ahead and watch that first before you listen to this one or listen to this one and then watch the movie, do what you want to do. But just spoiler warning in general. Also, Tosh and Raven have a cool announcement. Yes. So I just need to have a, a very proud roommate moment here. If you guys don't know, Tosh and I are housemates here in London. And I just want to say that Tosh has a show coming out on February 17th. So if you are based in the UK, definitely check it out on Channel 4. It's called The Great British Dig, and she gets to be a superstar archaeologist on TV, dig up people's back gardens, and just uncover some amazing history. And I'm just really proud of her, so make sure you go watch it and give it all the likes. Thank you. I, I don't think I could have even summed it up like that. <laughs> I was there while you were filming it. I just watching you and just being like so proud. I was like, there she goes, off for another week to just be famous. On a fun note, though, we do have a site that's about Anglo-Scandinavian and Anglo-Saxon cemeteries. So it kind of links into today's episode. Awesome. Well, yeah, you guys can find that on Channel 4 over there. Uh, we might get it on Acorn here. I don't know. But all right. Anyway, check out Tasha's page for that, which is behind the trowel. All right, guys. Here's the episode. Welcome to episode 44 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johnnan and David Ian Howe. In this episode, we are pleased to have Raven Todd De Silva and Natasha Bilson return to the podcast. Raven is another OG from the early episodes appearing on episode nine and runs a very popular Instagram and YouTube channel called Dig It With Raven. And Natasha, aka Tosh, was recently on episode 29 and also runs a YouTube channel called Behind the Trowel. If you follow us on social media, then you know that both of these archaeologists are part of the Archaeology Avengers, and we are super excited to have them on the podcast. Raven and Natasha, thank you guys so much for joining us. How are the two of you doing? Hi, uh, thanks for having me back and us back. It's I'm doing good. I'm just, you know, trying to live through 2021 the same way we did 2020. This is barely. <laughs> well, thanks for having us. I'm excited for us to all be together on a podcast. Yeah. It's so weird not to see your faces, though, just to hear your voices. Yeah, because every time you do one of your archaeologists in quarantine, it's always recorded and face-to-face. Well, not face-to-face, screen-to-screen. And live. But, uh, and live, <laughs> screen yes. Screen-to-screen and live. <laughs> yes. All of those things. So today we wanted to bring Natasha and Raven on the show to talk about Netflix's The Dig, which is about the Sutton Who excavation in the late 1930s. Both of these archaeologists have produced Sutton Who related videos on their YouTube channels that I highly encourage you to check out. They are always informative and very fun. So, Natasha, 
What is Sutton Hoo? Well, Sutton Hoo is actually the name of a, a village in the east of England in Suffolk. So a lot of people ask, why is it called Sutton Hoo? Well, it's literally because it's it's a place. It's, it's the name of the town. And it's an estate that was owned by Edith Pretty. And literally it starts from somebody's just pure wanting to know what was going on in her land. Apparently it's the reason why they had bought that estate because of these peculiar mounds, these hill-like shapes that were in her estate. So it just happens from a conversation in, I think, 1937. Excavations start in 1938, where they excavate mounds two, three, and four. And then the famous excavations of 1939, where we hear the beautiful ship burial, which ironically, actually, I want to say from the get-go, it's not the first and only ship burial at Sutton Hoo. It's one of two, but we only ever hear about this one. Um, so I just want to put that out there first. So yeah, it's it's really one of those fantastic archaeological discoveries in British history. And it's kind of through a pinnacle moment in time because World War II was looming. So I think there's so much more going around it, not just archaeologically, but also nationalistically. Like it really gets everybody excited about something during a period when people are just facing another world war. So I think there's so much more going on socially as well as historically on the site. Yeah. And that, that time period is pretty, pretty important because they don't, in the movie, the dig, they don't blatantly come out and tell you what year it is. Like they have Mrs. Pretty ask her Butler to turn on the wireless also known as a radio. And uh, you know, they're talking about Hitler and what's going on in Europe. And so you can, they're not blatant about it, but you have this backdrop of this is Britain right before World their entry into World War II. In, I think um, in the the beginning of the movie it says 1939. Do they actually? Yeah. So just negate everything I just said. <laughs> but if you weren't paying attention to the front, you can pick it up towards the back. So I think World War II started in September. Anyways, my question is: is they talk throughout? You know, the archaeologist that comes in from the British Museum who comes in later. Basil Brown, the excavator, the amateur archaeologist, I say, like, how would we describe Basil Brown? Because he's pretty prominent both in, in this whole excavation, right? Avocationalist, I think would be the word here. He's an, he's an, he, he's an archaeologist. I Come on, he's an archaeologist. Yeah. It's just back then, they would just say because he's not part of the you know, a museum or from a university, they mm-hmm. they distinguished him as somebody else. But I mean, come on, his experience in the field prior to this excavation and after over 30 years worth. So he's an archaeologist in my eyes, but he's referred to as an excavator. Yeah, yeah. And I think they, they see that in uh, America too, kind of the early archaeologists, you know, with the quotation marks around them are folks who actually go out and do it in the field, but they might not have this background, this academic background to say that they're like full on archeologists, but they are, you know, in reality, they are people who are, you know, doing the work that we ultimately study in these periods. And I'm just like, I'm thinking about some of the earlier archeologists in America. Wasn't there like a Norwegian or someone who like came to Mesa Verde and like blew it up with dynamite to get things out. And he was a trained archeologist. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think that is. Me. Yeah, I think that's very much the the case. So, like, the academics are in here throwing dynamite and things, and the avocationists or av- avocational, whatever word. Yeah, that got, that word. Got, yep, you got uh, it. Ten out of ten are, <laughs> are doing kind of some 
interesting work. So, but that's also like a blanket statement. So don't, don't believe everything you hear coming out of my mouth. And so like Mrs. Pretty has these mounds on, on her property, like that her and her, her husband bought the property, right? Who is a Colonel in the British military. He passed away before the events of the movie took place. Do we know if he passed? Like, is that accurate? Like, did the movie portray that correctly? Like, she was just there with herself and her son and her... Yeah, she was a widow. They were married for about 12 years before she passed, and he left her with a young son on the site there. So she was... That was an accurate part of the film. Gotcha. You know, here in in the States, we do have mound cultures, and kind of similar in in thinking about the the mounds that we see in Northern and, and Western Europe. In the movie, they portray Basil Brown as excavating a mound of his choice because it's circular, um, while Mrs. Pretty is really wants him to excavate an oval-shaped one, but since it was odd, he didn't want to do anything about it. In the movie, they portray him digging that oval mound second after the wall collapse and he gets buried alive. Thankfully, he was rescued. So, Tosh, you were mentioning earlier that that long ship excavation wasn't till like fourth or fifth, right? Right. So that would have been Mound One. We refer to it as Mound One, which the excavation is taken in the second season, which is 1939, which is when the book and the film is based on. But of course, Basil Brown was there a year prior where he did Mounds Two, Three and Four. And in the book and in the film, they depict the, the sides collapsing. That's probably one of those mounds. So they've just incorporated it together. To be honest, probably, like we know from the archaeological record that they did not look at Mound One, which is the ship burial that we always think of as Sutton Hoo. They were looking at something else before. So I guess it's just a nice sort of tantalizing way to entwine the excavation so far and to show, maybe actually to show the fact that things get robbed, right? There's a lot of activity going on archaeologically and during antiquitarian times and even in the Tudor times that we know Sutton Hoo has been interfered with. So I think the film and the book is trying to show that there might be something that's interacted with the mounds and we might not get the full archaeological deposit. I think that's what they're trying to show here by the rubber cuts. So I think they call it rubber shoe. Is that right, Raven? I can't remember the term they use in the film. Some sort of shoot. Rubber shoot, maybe he calls it? Flute. Flute. That's it. Flute. Yeah. Yeah. Flute. Ah, there you go. So I think that's what they're trying to show in the film to show that there's something else going on and who knows? I mean, to be honest, if you have a large mound, you're going to be fascinated by that large mound more than the little ones. So maybe that's what they're trying to show. Uh, who knows? I'm not sure. Raven, do you know if uh, it was Edith who, who was knows? pushing for the larger mound to be excavated? Exactly. <laughs> really? Oh, gosh. Um... <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I don't know who was pushing for what. All of the, the readings, you know, if you read any sort of, you guys know, academic journals and stuff about finds and sites, they don't tell you the, the cool nuanced stuff. So I'm not sure who pushed for which one, but the way they did it in the film kind of makes it a nice, like, storytelling arc. So they're they're taking a little bit of liberties with the exact premise of how things happen, which is very common in archaeology depictions in general. Do you guys think it it does the site justice by kind of twisting this narrative? The movie was based on a book that was based on the site. So it's kind of like liberties taken times two. I did enjoy the more realistic depictions of archaeology that the film 
had in comparison to our typical Indiana Jones, Lara Croft, even though we do love them. Um, but I think Tash agrees on it too, and she can speak more to it. But the depiction of a lot of, and the lack of other women that were present on the site and doing the work there, that was kind of a, a little bit of a, a sad moment in, uh, that, in telling the story of Sutton Hoo. One thing that I, I really wish the film would have portrayed is like Rory, the cousin of Mrs. Pretty, is a fictional character. And he was the one taking the photographs. But there's actually like two photographers that were present. They were both women, um, Mercy Lack and Barbara Wagstaff. And it, it's widely held that they produced the first color photogra- photographs of an archaeological excavation in England. And I felt like that was something that they missed and I would have liked to have seen. Like that, that would have been cool, right? Like Sutton Hoo isn't just first in terms of finding the ship and what it meant in the context of the archaeological record, which we'll get to later, right? The importance of this find, but also other things that were going on that were rather new to archaeology, right? And especially like color photographs is not something that we think of when it comes to the 1930s. No, exactly. And I do wish that they had kind of not done the whole half fulfilled love interest scene that they had with, uh, was it Rory and Peggy? Kind of like ended weird that way. And they just kind of I just feel like they just had to throw in a, oh, there's another woman on the site. Let's just throw this love story in to try and. Yeah, I thought that was kind of contrived. I was like, yeah. But I mean, it was cool. But yeah, like it, it was a happy ending at least, right? Well, it's a happy ending, but isn't it? Th- I find it so funny that the author of the book is the nephew of Peggy. I didn't is know it? that. Really? Huh. What? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's her, it's her nephew. So maybe she like told him a story? Well, apparently they didn't, they were not in touch. And apparently he only knew that she excavated at Sutton Hoo when he was thinking of writing a book. That's what apparently they're saying. But who knows, right? We're just speculating. Who knows? But I mean, it's the nephew. So I don't know. It just adds another layer to it, I think. There's some drama there. Right. So the whole, so the whole <laughs> cast of characters, right? I think it's important because we bring this up. So you have Mrs. Pretty. She's the landowner. Her son, Robert, right? Yes. Young, young son. They have a fictional character named mm-hmm. Rory, who is Mrs. Pretty's cousin, who in the film, he's basically waiting on orders to go to the RAF. Basil Brown, the advocational archaeologist, the original excavator. Then the two field hands. I forget their names off the top of my head. Does anyone know them? Oh, the guard, the, um, the staff. Mrs. Pretty's yeah. staff, right? Yeah. You mean, or the archaeologists? The staff. Yeah, they're just there to help excavate. They don't have much storytelling. But then the archaeologist from the the British Museum, I forget his name. Uh, him. Charles he, Phillips. Charles Phillips, yeah. Charles, Charles Phillips. Phillips. Okay, Charles Phillips. Peggy, who is the – she's an archaeologist who's a wife of another archaeologist. And I, what is his name? Like they, they're – They don't do a good job of names in the film. No. I just feel like the piggots in general, they're not depicted well. <laughs> both of them i mean they're both esteemed archaeologists Stuart and peggy especially peggy and the way they depict her i mean as you said earlier like how the women are there's four main female individuals who are part of sutton who's excavations in 1939 and we only see two of them and that's edith pretty and, and peggy piggott but even Peggy's not depicted correctly, and nor are the two photographers who are replaced by a fictional character, Rory. However, we've got to remember it's a book, so and then it's a film. Right. So there's only so much we can 
we can say about that, right? So in terms of like film quality, if we're not looking at this from like a, a, a factual or like archaeological lens, is this a good movie overall? I, I thought so. Yeah. I liked it. I mean, it's definitely for people who love archaeology and history. I think it's, it's, it's a niche. It's very niche. But I mean, I enjoyed it. I think it's done quite well considering. Did like did you guys pick up like on what like the deeper theme of it was besides like you know the archaeology because I I kind of had a thought that it was about like loss but I I couldn't tell exactly because then they like moved new plots in like through the middle of it but because like the lady was dying and then like that one lady's relationship was falling apart and then the guy was going to war but like I couldn't really put that together with like the ship other than that like you know being almost lost to history in a way you know whoa david that's deep oh yeah this is yeah david we i was talking to david about it last night and i was like i i at first i really didn't like the movie because i was like this is so slow it feels like i'm a crew chief just watching an excavation and then i was talking to david he's like no 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 dude the film's about loss in an archaeological setting and then i rewatched again this morning with that framework and i was like oh no this is actually really good one if you're not super focused on the archaeology but that makes a lot of sense actually because you can kind of see even even dealing with like rory going off to the war and that whole talk about you know when you join the raf you're pretty much just signing your your death certificate yeah and the little boy was frustrated because obviously he lost his father and then like he was losing his mother too and he was like i can't do anything about it kind of thing and and then um, he almost lost Basil and he biked all the way to his house. Oh, no. Yeah. So like I, I was focusing on that like as at the same time, but I'm trying to be like, why the hell are they digging it that way? <laughs> and I was like kind of upset. But there were many times where like, or most of the movie, it was really good excavation techniques. I think I just steamrolled over you guys, but you, uh, you know British stuff more than I do. Yeah. And also they're digging uh they're digging a burial, which is all about loss too, right? So even what they're working on is about some how how people are, are finalizing someone's death in prehistory. Speaking of finalizing, we're gonna step out of this segment, which is segment one of this episode, and we will catch you on the next one. So welcome back to episode forty-four of a Life in Ruins podcast. We are here with Tosh and Raven at this point chatting about the dig and Sutton who and kind of representation of archaeology in the media. And I wanted to ask you two how you feel about their approach to depicting archaeology. So they obviously take some, they take a tack where they're they're focusing on kind of the the human part of the archaeology here and less focusing on the excavation methods and, and things like that. So do you think that's an appropriate way for, for archaeology to be portrayed going into the future? So I think there's a couple of things we need to, to look at. First of all, it's a film. It's not a documentary. If they had focused so much on the archaeology, would that have appealed to the wider audience? Secondly, come on. We all know when you're on excavations and there's a lot of people, a lot of archaeologists, sometimes a romance may happen. So who knows? Maybe the author knew this and wanted to add that bit in. But what we should focus on is the fact that when they're depicting excavations, they actually did have consultants, right? They had actual archaeologists. They had representatives from MOLA. And uh, they actually got to go to an archaeological site. If memory serves, in 2015, they went to Boar Head, which is an Elizabethan, I think, 
it was a theatre, if memory serves. And they got to go, and at least for a day, they got to see how archaeologists were excavating the deposits and interpreting the deposits, and they had to look around the site. They also then had people on site who were also archaeologists from Mola, and they even had trowels from some archaeologists from the same company. And they were shown how to trowel, how to put the string line up, how to excavate in a systematic way. So they are depicting it quite well. I mean, the mounds that we see in the film, they created this for the film. The, the ship, that's a prop that they created as well. So all of this, they put so much into it, actually. I think a lot of money was put in to making sure that the excavation techniques were depicted in a way that is true to what we do. And the tools that we see, the the system, they did quite well. Okay, there's a few things here and there. I remember um, there's a scene where Peggy is brushing and she's quite annoyed with her husband, Stuart. And the way she's brushing that, I'm like, mm, or troweling. There's something, there's a movement she was doing. And I was like, what is she doing? But obviously she's in character. She's upset with him, right? So there's a few things here and there. But generally speaking, I think they did quite well. And apparently the actors, they didn't know where the artifacts were buried. So apparently we see their reaction to finding the artifacts. So we're kind of getting that connection with them as well as then seeing the artifact in its glory. But as we know from seeing the film, they don't really focus on the archaeological artifacts itself. They look more towards the excavation techniques and the people who were there at that time. But as David said before the break, there's more to it than just the archaeology. There's, I think, what's going on at that moment in time and loss and, and death. And I think, I don't know if you guys saw it as well, there's a lot of correlation between, for example, there was that crash, the aeroplane crash, that's fictional at that time. It didn't happen during the excavations. There is something that happens later on, but at that moment in time, that doesn't happen. And they, they rescued that, that soldier, that um, RAF pilot out the plane. They put him into the boat and you see him, this body of, right, of, the, of the soldier in a boat. Maybe that's to give you an, an idea of what the burial might have looked like. Right, the Sutton Who ship burial, and then uh, we see period. Oh, <laughs> yeah, and didn't did you guys also? See, did you not? Did you guys see the bit where there's like Edith Pretty? She's like, she's quite ill, and she's like crouched, and that kind of reminded me of like the crouched burials. I think I looked maybe too much into this, but, <laughs> but there's also there's, the scene at the end when she's lying in the burial before they. Yeah, exactly. Dig, yeah, and that's kind of really cool. So she's like seeing, looking up at the stars, having a little sleepover. There's so much. I think there's so many correlations. It depends how deep you want to look into it, isn't it? But it's definitely loss. There's definitely something there. So I think it's done quite well considering it's a film. Yeah, I thought so. I did love that fact about the the finds being hidden because for me, that was probably the most exciting part of the film because you feel that excitement. And that is the same excitement that at least I get when I'm on site and I find something, even if it's like not as exciting as what they were finding. But if you get something that's kind of cool or interesting and you get that that rush, and I really think that they did a good job of portraying that part of archaeology. Yeah, it, it was really cool to see them down in like the the trenches of it, or I guess in the ship. Like it looks exactly like the photos. Like they got it. One thing I've always wanted to do, like doing all this media stuff, is figure out how to make like a convincing looking archaeological site so i could like bury stuff into it and like then dig it out but like obviously it looks disturbed and the soil is kind of weird but it looks like they really like put their time into like making a completely mock ship burial because it looked real you know it was cool yeah they did a great job with that 
I think them troweling it out and stuff, it looked like miserable, like it usually is. Um, but also not miserable at the same time because you're digging something really cool. Could you imagine X like, because Mrs. Uh, what is it? P- Peggy? What's Peggy? That's her name? Peggy Piggott. Yeah. yeah. Peggy Piggott. It's like excavating in like a summer shirt. Like I couldn't imagine oh, excavating in a, in a skirt, like in the slightest, or even like Basil Brown who's wearing a three-piece suit. Well, it's, you know, the gentleman archaeologist, that's what they would, you know, you'd wear that to go to the grocery store back then too, right? Yeah, that's true. And he's riding his bike with it, all sweaty, getting to the museum. Oh. Yeah. So it seems like they did a good job of kind of depicting the times, at least, although they took liberties in, in, in certain areas. But, you know, I think we want to talk about the actual dig that happened at, at Sutton Who and and various phases and whatnot. And it's actually a pretty significant find for British archaeology in general. I don't, I don't know if Tosh, you, you were taught about this in in school or anything like that. How do they kind of depict this? Right. I'm trying to get from memory now. So if I remember correctly, Sutton Who kind of just, it changed our understanding of what we interpreted Anglo-Saxons at that time period. They were more sophisticated. They were trading with the world. I mean, if you look at the material culture, the things that we were finding, it was from all over the world. Those grave goods, those those gifts that were given to that individual, all everything that we found in that burial chamber redefined what we understood. Bearing in mind, we're talking about the early 1930s, you know, like well, late 1930s, maybe now we would interpret it differently. But at that moment in time, it really changed everything for us. It was really an important find and one of the main reasons why it's an archaeological discovery of the century and why we still talk about it today. I mean, there's only one, I think, of four helmets. Yeah, the Sutton Hoo helmet is one of four. Um, it's mm. one of three ship burials found in England. It's, it's really a a really important part of English history, of Anglo-Saxon history, that if they were not excavated, who knows? Probably it could have been destroyed during World War II due to the location of that of the estate, of Sutton Hoo Estate. That land was taken over during World War II trenching when they're practicing. So who knows how much would have been kept if they had not excavated prior to World War II. It's, it, there's so much going on about it. It's, it's really unbelievable. It's it's an iconic site and we're still learning so much about it, considering only like later on post-war, we're able to look at the artifacts and understand exactly what was going on with it. And that's kind of what I like about the film. Like at the end, you don't really, even though it's a shame, they don't really focus on the finds that much, but you see in the crates, you see glimpses of the, of the helmet, you know, mm-hmm. you see bits of it. And I think they do it on purpose to kind of scantilize it a little bit because I don't think the archaeologists on that site understood exactly how significant it was. They saw the coins, but until you look at everything, the material culture, everything that's going on, then you fully understand from my point of view. It was significant in a nutshell. It's a significant site. And what I find like interesting, right, is like one of the most famous poems in the Western world is is Beowulf, of course. And I and like in and Beowulf is supposed to take place before the Vikings. And in that tale they talk about kings and longships and and gold and treasure and it was kind of thought of as like just legend 
But even like the helmet that we were talking about matches pretty closely with descriptions of what's in Beowulf and what they found at Sutton Hoo actually kind of like what Beowulf, even though it's, you know, a story, right? That it was based on some sort of reality that that based off of the Sutton Hoo excavation was actually telling how they were describing pre-Viking Britain was was based on actual culture, right? Exactly. I mean, Beowulf... When you think about it in that context, of course, we're speculating. Who knows what that poem is, if it's written on a particular individual, particular people of the time, or they're being a bit more vague. Most likely, I'm sure Raven would agree, it's quite speculative. We can't compare them as being, you know, it's definitely the same. We can just look at it as two texts. But what we need to know is that when they were interpreting Sutton Who, they were looking at Beowulf, right? And they were like, oh, well, they match up pretty well. So I, this is kind of an issue, I think, is that sometimes we might look at a historical text or a poem and we call it historical text. And then we're like, well, this says this and we found this. So it has to be the same. So I think we need to have some flexibility there. Yeah, because we, we always take these historical documents with a grain of salt. Mm. You're assuming that they're writing from a certain perspective or they're writing to trying to tell it, trying to tell a tale or something like that. But it, you know. Like you said, Tashi, you, I think we need to take these texts a little more serious. And I like, I, I absolutely love that Sutton Who is like this, this perfect example of that. And it's, 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 it's super interesting for, for me as someone who's, you know, being in America and things like that, we tend to discount or we take all these historical writings as, you know, with a grain of salt, but, but there is this, overriding truth deep within them and that's super cool super cool (laughs) anything you want to add well you know i just you know there is truth to to every story right and people when you know when things are written down when stories poems folk tales myths are created there's always some little bit of uh, truth in there and yours you know you there's the whole you write what you know thing so I do agree where you kind of have to take you have to do take them with a grain of salt but don't completely dismiss them because it's all all part of the culture so you want to have to be able to you want to be able to look at the whole picture and to do that you need to use these literary fictional sources because it can give you an insight into even just the mindset or the the values of the people who wrote it and what that material culture could translate into. Absolutely. And so as we were kind of talking about in the beginning or in the mid, mid part of this section, like a prominent theme throughout the dig up until they find the grave goods being gold and some of these other things. Basil Brown is adamant. He's like, he thinks that this ship is older than Vikings. Because as we kind of touched upon already, and as Tosh and Raven had mentioned, like there is a limited understanding of pre-Viking invasion culture in, in what is it, East Anglia is where this is? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, East times. Anglia. Yeah. I watch a lot of Vikings. And when they find that coin, I just thought it was interesting when that archaeo- when when Basil brings over that that coin that's from a particular period. Merovingian. Mer- the Merovingian, yes. Merovingian coin that the archaeologist starts screaming is like it's like it's it's Anglo-Saxon. These people had culture. 
and just got really excited. I like felt that enthusiasm because that's, as we've mentioned, it's a, it's a revolutionary new understanding of, of the established cultural chronology of uh, Britain at that time. I'd like to talk about that, uh, that archeologist actually, I forget his name. Charles Um, Phillips. Charles Phillips. Yeah. With all of the, you know, like anti-science, anti-archaeology stuff on the internet these days, not to get into that too hard, but like they really paint that guy to be like, and show all archaeologists to be total, like, for lack of a better word, like douches. So like it was, it like kind of made me upset, but obviously for the story and to like discredit Basil in the, like the, the like that made, they made their point. But then, like, I know anybody who doesn't like archaeology or thinks archaeologists are, you know, quote unquote, hiding the truth. It literally amplifies that tenfold in the movie. And I was like, uh, like, that's not good. But that guy, when reading about the site, literally did that. And they didn't put his name on the thing. So pre-modern archaeology at the British Museum doesn't seem like it was a great place. But I don't know. That's And that's, and that's like a nice asterisk to put on that is that. Early on, this might have been something you would hide from communities or worry about people treasure hunting or things like that. But I, I, I think in modern archaeology, the goal is, and, and and plenty of the projects I work on now in CRM, there's this public aspect to it that you want to bring to light. I mean, we want people to know what where they live and what they, you know, where they live and what has happened before then. So I, I completely agree david that they like amplify that a little bit but i think there should definitely be an asterisk there where it's like we we are trying to remedy that right now right yeah and i i think they with basil's story made it good you know like because i learned how to dig from quite literally a british like you know volunteer at the topper site and he knew how to dig better than most archaeologists so like, like obviously you shouldn't like rule people like that out. And Basil obviously knew what he was doing. Well, on that note, we're going to rule out this second segment here and we'll catch you in the third segment. Welcome back. So we are recording this on February 8th and today is a very special day. And why is that, Connor? I heard there's a birthday going on as part of this podcast and it is indeed Davy and Howe's birthday so we wanted to um opera sing um happy birthday to you happy birthday to you happy Smell like a monkey. Hashtag Jane Goodall. Can you believe we Thank- did that without rehearsing? Uh, wow, <laughs> wow. That's all I got to say to that. Uh, yeah. Thanks, guys. Hopefully, it's my last. Jesus, no! <laughs> stop it. We had this conversation. You got to stop with those jokes. It's like every uh, time. <laughs> 
Don't say that. You're my age, right? So it's like, this is just, oh God. I'm David. 29, so I sh- 29. I'll be uh, one more year and then my knees give out. <laughs> oh, you still have your knees. Wow. <laughs> Mine yeah, went lucky, like three lucky years you. ago. Lucky you. Oh, did you have back surgery before you were 30? I didn't think so. Plain. So <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. I forgot about that, Connor. Yeah. Sorry to hear that. <laughs> yeah. How, how well, is that back doing? Oh, it's, it's, it's not good. <laughs> I have I have disc ge- degeneration already, and I'm not even 30. So, you know, cheers. Um, on cheers. that on that point, Carlton wanted to talk about the techniques and how they excavated at at Sutton to who. So, Carlton, if you don't mind uh, elucidating on that, do you mind if I interject real quick before you start that? Interject. Cool. This is a neat fact that I was trying to sneak in at some point, but I don't know where else to sneak it, so I'm doing it now. Sutton who is actually how you pronounce how when I like looked into my like last name. So it's the same thing. And it means like burial mound, which is cool. So like how is the modern spelling of that? But like apparently in like Gaelic you'd say who, which is cool. So the site's named after me, therefore I own it. Cool. Go Carlton. Are you gonna bury yourself in a mound as well? Where'd you get the idea of a mound? I thought how was um a village? It's like a village, a highland, or a mound is like how I've always heard it described. So it mm. seems like a place that's not flat. Okay, we'll burn you then. Cool, good to know. Yay. <laughs> it's interesting that it's like a, a time period piece, nineteen thirties, where archaeological excavation and techniques weren't they're very different than uh, how we have them today. And we mentioned this at least previously that they are they're actually digging with trowels at at Sutton Who, and that's that's pretty important, right? Yes, I loved watching that happen and just seeing them actually using trowels. And one of my favorite parts was when they were along the edges and they were saying, you know, careful when you're stepping in. And I was like, oh my gosh, like yes, <laughs> it got me very excited because you always see people jumping into trenches and whatnot. And talking about the trenches when he got buried alive and he was telling Mrs. Pretty to to not be there because it would fall. That's a real danger for archaeologists that no one really talks about. And so seeing all these kind of methods and the discussions they have on the site was was very exciting to see in a Hollywood film. So I just want to say quickly, Raven, you know when you were researching the tools, because I know you you maybe looked at that a bit more in regards to trowels i know we use trowels i remember seeing photos from 1920 late 1920s there's first some, an excavation in scotland and there's some archaeologists who have trowels i'm not sure on the shape exactly because obviously in the film they're using modern trowels so i i think they definitely had trowels but maybe not obviously stainless steel like we have now maybe a bit more flimsy do you remember yeah, what never- type of tools they had I've never gone into the history of the trial, but that would make a great video. <laughs> Isn't that literally the name of your YouTube channel, Tosh? Behind right. the trial. Oh, true. <laughs> <laughs> trial drop, boom. <laughs> also, you you dig with a square trial, not a pointy trial. I'm just saying. Amen. 100%. Can't tell me otherwise. Pointy trials are for breaking bones and stabbing students. Oh, wow. Talking from experience, are we? He did lead uh, um, uh, an excavation. My lawyer said to not to comment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm his lawyer, and and uh, legal counsel says that he should not say that. That's a t-shirt coming, but yeah, no, uh, yeah, you guys use pointy trials over there, don't you? I mean, a lot of archaeologists here do too. I think it's a really a Wyoming thing, the square trowel. 
as the as the prominent one. I like it's straight a, lines. Do you want straight walls or not thing? <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I can make a straight wall with a pointy trowel. Mm. You are a goddess in human, yeah, human <laughs> form. Because I don't, I don't understand how that happens otherwise. But you guys are doing mainly test pits, right? So it's a bit different. So maybe it depends on your the, the situation of how you're excavating something. Yeah, like if you're just peeling off layers, I think a marginal trowel is the way to go. But if you're trying to like dig something out and around something, I think the pointer trowel is the way to go. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I use marginal marginal use- trowel. Look at you and your big fancy words. Yeah, I've used my pointy trowel just helps me get plasters out of the ground more accurately. But I, I just I think it's it's just a preference thing. I just like the square trowel a little bit more. We're done being snobs. Um, I was going <laughs> to talk about the um, uh, when he the the mound collapses on the guy. My first thought was because he says to the lady, "Hey, don't step in there. You know that's not safe." And then like the next scene, like or in that same scene, that collapses on him. But like in a regular mound excavation, at least, or any excavation here, we have OSHA. This is more for the audience listening. It's op- Occupational Safety Hazard yeah, Association. Something? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're the ones that shut down SeaWorld. Okay. Uh, that might have been PETA, right? That's something different. Nope. Anyway. Uh, OSHA. Okay. Can't well, have to OSHA. Kill the whales eating people. True. Uh, OSHA basically makes us, if you have something more than a meter deep, you have to like shore your walls. Or it depends on, I think, the, where you're at, but. He did not shore the walls at all. They were just completely vertical, taller than his head, which will cause them to fall in on you like that. So that's a no-no. It is what it is, cause. Yeah, it's what it is. Yeah, of but. course, even that, we wouldn't dig that deep. Like every single site's a bit different. I mean, that was sad. So that, yeah, they shouldn't, in theory, like now we wouldn't be doing that. Generally, like bog standard 1.2, we say 1.2 meters. If it's 1.2 meters, then you have to start stepping. But depending on the deposit, so if it's sand, it's a bit looser, you'd, you'd start stepping it out. So literally creating this sort of step system um, way before. It just depends on the deposit itself. So yeah, same thing. Or you shore it. It just depends on what's going on. And the only way to become a really famous archaeologist is to have your walls collapse on you. Shout out George Frizen for being buried alive and at multiple places. That's the only way to get really, really famous in archaeology is oh to have your walls collapse on a new RIP, George. I told my mom that and she was freaked. She started freaking out. She didn't know it was a real thing. So thanks for She's going to listen to this and be like, oh, great. So that's how Raven's going to go. <laughs> that almost think- happened to me at Om before at Om Rock Shelter up at Wyoming, where I had like a bit of... Um, I think it was just like really crappy quartzite or something it came off the wall. And I thought like, cause I was in like a three meter deep test uh, unit. And I thought that was the beginning of me just getting buried alive and it's going to take them like six or seven feet just to get me out of there. But thankfully it didn't, but I mean, heart attack inducing episode there. Quickest way to save your life. If that happens is to always wear a shirt, stick your head in your shirt, and then you have a small pocket of air to breathe before you inhale a bunch of dirt and choke to death. But if the weight of it is enough to crush you, then, you know, you're SOL. This, this took a, a really dark turn after the happy birthday, really. Like. Yeah, yeah. top <laughs> tips from David here. Make sure you wear a shirt when excavating. Yeah. That way you can pray out loud before you die. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, continuing with the excavation talk, the way Basil prepped his excavation like he removed the the top sod first to expose the top soil and then kind of it looked like he went stratigraphically you know i mean maybe not stratigraphically but 
like the way he prepped the site before excavation, I thought was really well done as well. And once they had, you know, the ship exposed, they had the wall shored up and they're using brushes and trowels. And they even mentioned at one point, you know, when the archaeologist Phillips wants to get in there <laughs> and, uh, and Basil's like, uh, this site's too fragile. I don't think it could support someone of your, uh, like what he's a stature or build or something like that. Basically calling him like, Hey fatty, stay out of my hole. And they had people of, and we see that, like I know in, uh, Alex Garcia from the university of Wyoming was telling me once when they were excavating in Peru that they had to wear like socks in one of these excavations and like only really light people could get in there because they were working in a, in a cemetery with a lot of exposed bone and they didn't want to destroy the bone. And they didn't want you wearing shoes, so you didn't crush it underneath your feet. So you had to wear something flat. I mean, what what other things did we notice other than the troweling that we would kind of nod at and say, yeah, that's good work? Is it my imagination or did I see a, a grid? You know, those ones where you're drawing and you can just like place the grid over it so you can... I know they're in there in the photos and I'm trying to remember if it was actually in the film as well. I think in one scene or two, they were there. You kind of see oh, it yeah. propped up against the side, right? Wait, in the 1930s, they made a grid? Yeah, it was just like a, like a screen grid that you could just that, place down. So you're drawing. It's for drawing 10 to 10, 10, 10 centimeters 10, by 10 centimeters. Yeah. So it's like a one meter square. We still use a panel, to be honest, in some situations. That's that's amazing because I don't I don't think that came into archaeology in the Americas till like the 70s or 80s. And even then it was used very sparingly so that's cool that's super cool because that that's that's how we control things and archaeology is doing things via grid yeah i didn't know it took that long for us to get it, it seems like a pretty you know ancient technique you could use for anything i could be wrong also i could be very wrong but i i assumed yeah i, I have no idea but another thing i wanted to to say like with the ship burial they didn't explain this in the movie at all and i had to look it up like obviously the wood had rotted away from the ship. So what you were seeing that was like, you know, the, the beams of the ship and like you could see the wood and the rivets and stuff. The soil was discolored in those spots where the wood had rotted away. So they could dig around that and the soil would be a lot darker there. So it literally made the imprint of the boat, which when the guy comes up and he's like, whoa, capital, when he like sees the like the excavate, like it would have been extremely impressive to see that because it, it literally preserved itself with like a, a shadow. Yeah, that's really cool. And I, it's for me with, you know, preservation and stuff and how things survive throughout the the record. It's super interesting to see how we can still find stuff like that, even if it has been disintegrated. You just have to be careful enough with your excavation methods. Thankfully, Basil Brown was in order to recognize it and make sure that we were able to to uncover it. Exactly, because like what people what a lot of people don't realize is the mound was literally like acidic bath and it was like bubbling away at the archaeology. And that's why we don't have a lot of organic material. We mainly just have the metals and the sort of imprint. And which is why we don't have a body. We don't have human remains and only in the sixties when they did a phosphate analysis that they could determine that, yes, that there was a body here. So scientifically, they've somewhat proven that there definitely was some sort of human remains. Because at one point, they weren't sure if the burial chamber was made in ritual or if they actually had a human burial within the chamber. So it's really interesting, actually. The site itself is so super interesting. Yeah. The more that we learn about it, it's just, oh, it's awesome. I really liked that he was telling, I think it was just, the the pretties that like like the mother and the son 
like ex- ex- how they would have gotten the ship there. And he like did landscape archaeology really quickly and explained, you know, like the thought processes of the people at the time. It wasn't just about the, pr- like the value of the artifacts. He said like these people would have come from the river, moved the ship all the way across with logs, probably took hundreds of people. And that's why it's significant because like they wouldn't have done that for just anybody. And that's like a huge aspect of archaeology that I think misses a lot in the public. It's like, it more you see the cool artifacts in a museum, but it, to us, it's more about the behavior that happened there, and that's the coolest thing they said in the movie. That's costly also, signaling, right? Uh, I mean, in a sense, yeah. You're just it's prestige. Yeah, absolutely. I mean that 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 requires a certain amount of organization. You know that 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 you're you have people who are working in certain. Yeah, it just it you're organized in a way where you can build a boat together, and that that's super interesting to see at least for hunter gatherers or anything like that in any society. So that's dope sound bite that. So like Tosh and Raven, what are your like final thoughts since we're like getting close to the end of the segment of the movie of Sutton who like, what, what is your, like uh, your final statement about the, what happened there? If Raven, if you don't mind going first. Well, I, I personally have a, a soft spot for Sutton who, because in my archaeology 101 class first semester of university like my undergraduate my professor dr ross he had this thing called archaeology movie thursdays where every because we had class twice a week and on tuesdays and thursdays and every thursday would be us watching some sort of archaeological documentary and the very first one was the documentary on the discovery of sutton who so that was my first introduction to the site, one of my very first introductions to learning about archaeology in an academic setting. And it always kind of stuck with you because it's just it's this amazing find, right? You, you look at the helmet and you automatically know where it's from. And it is one of those big ones where even if it's not your area of research or specialty, like you know it and you appreciate it for what it is and just how fantastic it is. And Seeing the film, I was very excited for the film. I had high expectations for it. And I I will say I I wasn't as disappointed as I thought I was going to be. (laughs) And there were some very great moments, you know, very exciting things where you you feel that excitement with them. But I did, I do agree with Connor, uh, not Connor, sorry. I do agree with Carlton saying that at one point I was thinking like, "This this is pretty slow. And they should have, in my opinion, because that's just, you know, who we are as archaeologists, I would have loved to have them focus more on the finds or just give them a little bit more love to to show people how spectacular it is and how different it is from a lot of other things that they were finding at the time and why it changed the field of archaeology. But of course, that's just a pipe dream because Hollywood would never go for that. But it, it was fun. I have been recommending it to my friends and family. So that's always a good sign. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Tosh, if you don't mind answering kind of the same question that wasn't a question, but then I intertwined it with another question because that's just who I am as a person. So, (laughs) Well, I think for me, maybe I'd just like to look at the finds itself, which are not really mentioned that much in the film. And that's just like the more recent work done. If you look at the helmets um, itself, as Raven just mentioned, um, what I love about it is that, of course, we see the the symbolisms, the, the iconography of iconography of the 
of the animals, the snake and the the flying animal who's either a bird or a dragon and and the relationship they're entwined and they're fighting with each other but i love when you look at the the eyes where you see the garnets kind of like where the eyebrows are and it's kind of like the bird or the dragons on fire right the wings are on fire and i love how there was a paper done recently by um paul mortimer and neil price where they look at the mask and they kind of interpret what's going on with the garnets and how only one of the eyes are somewhat reflecting um, the light in and out kind of like a bike reflector, bicycle reflector. And the other one's a bit more dark to resemble sort of Odin's eye. And I love how they've kind of interpreted the mask as symbolizing the the Odin, Odin, the, you know, the, the pagan source of belief. And, and on a flip side, I love how um, there was work done by Sue Brunning or Bruning. I don't know if that's her name actually, I've forgotten. I think it's Sue Brunnings, who's the um, curator of European early medieval collections at British Museum. And she looks at the pommel right, of the sword. And she basically interpreted the pommel by, um, by analysis that potentially the individual was left-handed. So I just want us to maybe think about the artifacts and how they um, give us a bigger insight into the individual and the people of that time. That's just what I'd like to say. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much <laughs> for for both of you for coming on and, and chatting with us. Um, where can folks find you, uh, Tosh, if you don't mind starting? Where can they find you on Instagram, YouTube, etc.? Sure. So if you are interested to see what I do, you can find me on Instagram on Tash underscore Archeo and Behind the Trial. I also have a YouTube channel behind the trial and you're going to soon find me on archaeology podcast network where we have behind the trial podcasts and you will be able to listen to archaeologists in quarantine which is a live stream youtube show which we're converting into a podcast format so i'll be joining the apn family very cool and raven i can be found on all of the socials so facebook instagram twitter and tiktok now because I'm trying to be cool with the youths at <laughs> Dig It With Raven, as well as on YouTube under the same name. What about MySpace? You know what? I tried the MySpace um, <laughs> thing. I, I just got a lot of weird emo kids trying to like you know send me stickers and whatnot. It was weird. So I, I kind of backed away from that one. So we're just going to go full on with TikTok and see what, see what comes out of that. I'm trying to you know emulate David there, see what I can do. Excellent. And with that, that is episode 44 of Life and Roots podcast. We just had an awesome interview about Sutton Who and the movie The Dig on Netflix with our friends Natasha Bilson and Raven Todd Da Silva. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Knock, knock. Oh, Jesus. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I know where this is going. No, not answering. No, I, I can't. I, I know, know, I know. I, yep. Who's there? Sutton. Sutton Who. Well, Sutton Who is a fantastic site in England, and you should listen to the rest of the podcast and enjoy it. Peace. That's awful. Thank you for that. That was horrible. Um, One last thing. (laughs) Guys, if you listen to the podcast, please, for the love of God, leave us a review. All right, end it. (laughs) 
This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.